This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Dr. Paul Basie is Professor and Board of Governors Research Chair in Culture, Organization, and Society at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada. His research has focused on understanding the development, evolution, and psychobiology of gender diversity and sexual orientation. He has studied female homosexual behavior in Japanese monkeys for the past 33 years. For 19 years, he's conducted annual fieldwork in Samoa, a culture where feminine same-sex attracted males are identified as a third gender called Fafafine. In 2015, Dr. Vesey established another field site in the Istmo region of Mexico. In this area, the indigenous people recognize feminine same-sex attracted males as a third gender called Mushe. And here's our conversation with Dr. Vesey. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I'm Aaron Kimberly, back with my co-host, as always, Aaron Terrell. And we're very excited to have Dr. Paul Vasey with us. We've talked about uh, your work, Paul, a a number of times um, on our podcast. So it's great to to have you on to answer some questions for us about the work that you do. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I know that whenever... um, I'm sure you're well aware that sometimes your work is is controversial. And whenever I've mentioned some of your studies, I, I inevitably get, you know, some some feedback and pushback on some of the concepts that, that you raise. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things that I hear often when I talk about your work in Samoa is that people feel like that work is specific to a very specific culture. And, and so I really wanted to ask you, why is it that you feel it's it's helpful to to study homosexuality in a place like Samoa, which is a fairly culture bound, um, you know, place to, to study. Uh, well, I would, I mean, I think the same argument could be made about North America. I, I, if I was talking to those people, I would say, well, what makes you think that whatever's going on in North America can be generalized to the rest of the planet, particularly if we're talking about all of the stuff around identity. Um, so, but more, more to the point of your question, um, one of the reasons I go to Samoa to study homosexuality, or as I refer to it, male androphilia. So I'm interested in, I mean, I'm interested in a lot of things, but in terms of the the research that probably I'm best known for, uh, I it focuses on biological males who are feminine and who are pretty much exclusively same sex attracted. Uh, so they're they're um, they're attracted to adult males and more specifically, uh, masculine adult males. So they're androphilic. Androphilia means sexual attraction to adult males. Um, but it's important to, you know, provide that caveat that it's not just any adult male they're attracted to. It's, it's masculinity that, that is, um, that is the most attractive. So why do I go there? Well, I mean, we, we've published, we published research in my lab that suggests that if you want to understand the evolution of male androphilia, and a lot of my work is evolutionary in content, 
that the best model for doing that is this feminine form of male androphilia or what what we might call um, transgender form. Um, that's not a word they would use to describe themselves necessarily. But, you know, for the purposes of my work and this conversation, I'm, I'm okay uh, using that word because if I talk about that word with them, they, they sort of nod and say, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Um, we can definitely see uh, the parallels. <clears throat> so this paper we published suggests that it's the, the transgender form of male androphilia that is likely the ancestral form, the, the first form in terms of, you know, the, an evolutionary sequence, and that the cisgender form of male androphilia, which you see here, uh, is, is uh, more what in evolutionary language more derived. So it, it, it came later. Um, so it just makes if if you're going to test evolutionary theories using the the cisgender or the, the gay form of male androphilia. Um, the results you get are not necessarily going to be, you might say, a, a, as accurate, um, as as informative uh, uh, um, compared to if you're studying the, the transgender form. So that's one reason I, I, I go there. <clears throat> but um, another reason is that, um, you know, my, my work really focuses on, on what you might call the deep structure of male androphilia. Uh, I'm really interested um, in what are the cross-cultural universals that characterize male androphiles. Uh, so it doesn't matter how they're socialized. It doesn't matter what culture they grow up in. Uh, these, this deep structure is always going to be present. And so um, and so that that's another reason I do the kind of cross-cultural work that I do, not, not only in Samoa, but in, in other places like um, a, a region in Mexico in the state of Oaxaca called the Istmo region. Uh, I, I work there with uh, a similar group of individuals, feminine, same-sex attracted males, uh, who in that particular culture are known as mushe. Um, so I should should just say that the Fafafine and the Mushe, which I'll probably be talking about a lot with you guys, is uh, they're they're both uh, the reason they're, they're those terms are used to refer to them is because in these particular cultures, they're not considered to be either by themselves or by others, uh, men or women. They're they're conceptualized as some alternative or third. Um, gender you know there's different language that's used and people get really hung up on the language but i think i think you get the point um <clears throat> and i guess another reason i work in places like samoa and the ismo region of oaxaca mexico and i work with these transgender male androphiles is because um you know that the these cross-cultural universal correlates of male androphilia that i study and publish on they suggest to me that we're we're not dealing with categorically different classes of human beings. We're dealing with um, we're dealing with individuals who represent. I mean, to, to use sciency language, the same natural kind, and how that. Um, in other words, they they share the same sort of biological potential, but how that biological potential gets expressed varies depending on the culture 
in which in which they develop. And so, you know, I've I, I, I've I've said many times publicly, if I grew up in Samoa, uh, chances are I wouldn't look like this. I'd I'd look far more feminine, because that's sort of the identity pathway that would be afforded to me in that particular cultural context. Uh, I know gay men in, in the Western context often have a reaction to that, um, feeling that it's like a forced, a forced feminization. Yeah. But I think from, from the, from the work that I've read of yours, it sounds like they're, it's not that they're told, you know, you have to be feminine, but they're identified as feminine and just allowed to grow up and remain feminine. Is that, is that sort of the pathway that, that you're familiar with? Sure, sure. So, um, so it's important to remember that gay men on average are more feminine than straight men. And so this is a very, very uh, well-described and well-documented correlate of male androphilia. Uh, and it's one that has uh, been identified in many, many, many different cultures around the globe. Um, it's one of the largest male sexual orientation differences that exists, if not the largest. Um, so I'm not saying every single gay guy uh, can be characterized in terms of um, childhood uh, sex atypicality or, or femininity. But what I am saying is that on average, that's, that's the case. And so what you have, regardless of culture, <laughs> You have little feminine pre-androphilic males. And <clears throat> in some cultures, that male femininity isn't particularly socially problematic. And they're, they take a laissez-faire attitude to it. And those feminine pre-androphilic boys grow up to be feminine androphilic adult males. Uh, in other cultures, such as the cultures we live in, the three of us, male femininity is more problematic. And so um, pre-feminine, pre-androphilic uh, males, male children, um, you know, defeminize de de and masculinize in, in as much as they're capable of doing so. And the end result of that is that they present as a adult male androphiles in a, in a, in a cisgender manner, what we would call gay guys. So rather than a cultural <clears throat> uh, feminization, <clears throat> as a lot of Western Westerners would describe um, the Fafafene and the, and the Musha, um, you're basically saying it's more like what the, the, the version of, of male homosexuality <clears throat> we have here in the West is more like a cultural masculinization in response to, <clears throat> to use the, the vernacular. Yeah. We, we all know, you know, homophobia. Yeah. I would say it's a, it's a feminine, it's a defeminization. There's two things going on. They're defeminizing okay. and they're masculinizing again, in as much as they can, because we have to remember that uh, even as adults, uh, gay guys are uh, more feminine on average than straight guys in terms of, for example, 
certain interests and personality traits. Again, uh, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here because uh, there's lots of evidence to back this up. And uh, there's evidence from multiple different cultures to back this up. Um, none of this stuff strikes me as controversial. I mean, some people might think it is, but look, look at the literature. Well, and, and it's not even, it's not even, excuse me, it's not even just scientifically. It's like this would have been self-evidently obvious and, and statable, I think, until recently with the kind of, uh, you know, trans uh, uh, trend that's taken over the West. And now a lot of gay men are kind of pushing back on the fact that they are uh, anything different than, uh, you know, straight, again, cis men, you know, it, that uh. that there is some sort of natural feminization that's happened there. Uh, and that seems to be why, why it's controversial now, just because, and again, like, we kind of, uh, our milieu is quite uh, gender critical, right? And so a lot of those are, that as in the, the, the backlash to the trans trend. <clears throat> and so a lot of that, uh, that demographic is uh, adult gay men who are um, simultaneously aware <clears throat> that they probably would have been uh, wrapped up in the in the in the in the uh, uh, you know the trans child uh, situation we've got now if they had been children, but are simultaneously mm -hmm. adverse to the idea that there is a natural femininity to gay men. Um, it is some sort of a paradox that exists uh, uh, yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of shame in your American cultures around male femininity. Um, gay guys don't like to be reminded that they're uh, more feminine on average than straight guys. Um, and I think there's maybe another important uh, reason for, for the reaction. And that's that if you're, if you're on the gay mating market, and we all know gay guys like like sex. Uh, if you're on the gay uh, male mating market, <clears throat> what is going to have the highest uh, value? The highest value on the gay male mating market is going to be guys that are masculine. And so any sort of suggestion that, um, you know, there might be a hint of femininity there either in the present or the past is going to be met with um consternation even in my lifetime you know i'm almost 50 um but i, I it, i've seen an evolution in gay and lesbian presentations just in just in my lifetime there mm -hmm. seemed to be a lot more gender nonconformity certainly in, in the 80s that was probably the the peak of of visibility in gay and lesbian gender nonconformity. And it I have a hypothesis that AIDS did a lot to to stop that in its tracks um, and probably forced um you know we've talked a lot about the disappearance of of the butch lesbian, but there's also been a disappearance of the effeminate, highly effeminate gay man. And it used to be my understanding used to be a lot more common for effeminate gay men to have sex with bisexual or, or heterosexual men. I know the gender criticals aren't going to like me saying that because they're going to say, well, heterosexuals wouldn't wouldn't have sex with a man. But, you know, highly effeminate, highly effeminate gay men in Asia, I'm told there are straight men that, that have sex with them. Sure, sure. So I've done some of that work. And uh, yeah, and in 
I, I think I think maybe Mike Bailey spoke a little bit about this uh, to to you guys that in in many of these non-Western cultures, uh, highly highly feminine gay men or or andro again my the the language I prefer is androphilic males because they don't necess- they don't identify as gay and they don't identify as men. So I say androphilic males. <clears throat> yeah, they're 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 the target of their sexual interest is not other feminine androphilic males because androphilic males, regardless of whether they're transgender or cisgender, are not interested in femininity. They're interested in masculinity. And so they would target uh they they could potentially target um, cisgender male androphiles if they existed in their cultures. Uh, but those cisgender male androphiles wouldn't be interested in having sex with them because they're feminine. Um, they're interested in socializing with them, being friends with them, but not, not having sex. Um, so who's left? Well, straight guys are left and straight guys like femininity. And, um, I mean, you could ask yourself, well, why, why would a straight guy sleep with, um, sleep with one of these, feminine males and we're talking about you know people who are pretty high in terms of their femininity there's probably a few reasons one is they're they're feminine um and straight guys like that another is that they can be more more um sexually assertive so they're more likely to um flirt with these straight guys um another reason another uh, possibility that again, this is all coming from the literature. Um, my, my, my one of my former students and I just published a huge review on men who um, men who have sex with with these kinds of individuals. Another reason is that they just avoid any sort of contact with their partner's penis. Um, you know, maintaining that sort of image of femininity in their heads. Um, also, in a lot of these interactions alcohol is involved and so alcohol lowers inhibitions and a lot of the guys i've interviewed um i'll i'll ask them like why what i i would ask a question like imagine if you're given a choice between having sex with a woman or sex with um fafa fine or mouche who would you choose and you know, it's very common for them to say woman first, not always, but it's, you know, pretty common. And if I ask, well, why, why then would you have sex with a papapine? Well, part of it is they can't always get what they want. And another, but more interesting, uh, at least for me, I find um, some of them go, well, sometimes you just want something different, <laughs> which I think is, is an interesting response that deserves further study what exactly is it they're talking about and sometimes when when i do probe a bit more deeply they say things like well they're better at sex they do more stuff um you you can just kind of lay there and they take over and take you around the world so to speak yeah what percentage of uh, androphilic males are fafafini in Samoa, mm-hmm. more than ninety-nine percent. It's extremely rare uh, that I meet a cisgender male androphile. When I do, 
um, I sort of gawk at them, like I'm looking at some rare species of bird because they're they're so rare. Uh, they're there, but you really, really, really have to uh, hunt for them. Um, I did one study where I had a, a, a sample of cisgender male androphiles from Samoa, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the sample size was, but it was somewhere, I think, between 15 and, and, and 20. And that was after, you know, really a, a really concerted effort to find these guys uh, over the course of, you know, field season that would have been a few months. Um, they're, they're not common. Is there kind of a cultural aversion <clears throat> to that kind of expression of, of homosexuality? Because I imagine there it's kind of closely like there's masculine straight men and then there's the fafafini and that, you know, femininity is associated with androphilia. So is there kind of a, a like our version of homophobia associated with an uh, like an actually masculine presenting androphile? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I think and, and and the interesting thing is the that sort of if you want to call it homophobia. Or right. I don't know another term to use. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's even, even the Fafafine kind of express that. I remember uh, speaking to one Fafafine and saying, well, are there any, are there any like men who have sex with other men uh, in Samoa? And she just looked at me kind of with this look of disgust on her face and said, I don't know, but I, I, I hope not. I mean, who would ever want to do that? Um, so yeah, there is, I think there's more averse reaction to two cisgender males having sex than there would be to uh, a cisgender straight guy and a fafafine, for example, having sex. I think, I'm not saying it's accepted, um, when a, when a straight guy has sex with a fafafine, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's accepted or certainly not celebrated. Uh, but, um, I think people tend to look the other way and it's sort of a, well, boys will be boys kind of attitude. It's, it's just a sort of peccadillo. Um, <clears throat> but I, I, I guess I should make it clear because it often isn't for people who are having these conversations that male femininity it it's in my opinion it's quite well accepted in Samoa but that doesn't mean that male homosexuality is accepted in Samoa it's it's not and the fafafine will often talk about you know that part of their lives is 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 not accepted. And people tend oh, to conflate oh. people tend to conflate those two things too. That you know oh, when we talk oh. about when we talk about that they're allowed to just remain feminine throughout their their lifetime. You know that as a model that you know and and conceptualizing that as a third gen third sex or third gender that model is a completely separate issue to their quality of life and social acceptance and. Just Social economic yeah. status and yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say it, uh, and I have said it again publicly. If I was a transgender male androphile, um, I think Samoa would be one of the best places in the world to to live. Um, 
they're the, you know they're they're fafafine they're they're I mean I don't want to exaggerate but they're they're everywhere you go if you walk into a bank the teller could be fafafine if you go to a restaurant the waitress could be a fafafine if you go to the prime minister's office the receptionist could be a fafafine they're no one does double takes when a fafafine walks down the road no one gawks um yeah they're they're and as far as i can tell and this is coming from someone who's worked there for what 19 years tw going on 20 years um they're they're very well integrated into the society and well accepted but the the sexual so the the male femininity part is very accepted but the male male sexuality part is um it's looked down on but but again you know my experience is that Samoans are very tolerant people and they might have some strong personal beliefs but um I I, I don't think that culturally that plays out in terms of them enforcing their beliefs on others. They might not want it for themselves and they might, you know, sort of personally disagree with it, but um, they're, again, my, my experience in Samoa is that they're, they're very, they're very tolerant. The, the aversion though, to, to the male, male sex act, where does that come from? Are, are they a religious people or what, what is the, what would you explain? Like, how is that explained? One one thing that I disagreed with Mike Bailey on is I I believe that there is some level of of innate homophobia, innate uh, aversion to same sex sexual acts. I believe that that does exist on a certain level, and uh, I'm wondering if that's where that's coming from, or if it is from a religious connotation of man should lie with woman and nothing else. Well, I'm I mean yes, uh, if you if you. I've ne I've never met a uh, well maybe once I was I was going to say I've never met a Samoan who doesn't declare that they're religious and that they are a, a member of some religion. Recently, I met one guy uh, that uh, um, that said he 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 was uh, atheist. Actually, he's I'm using he pronouns. He's a fafafine and he's um, cisgender, so he's one of those rare exceptions i guess he's exceptional too in terms of his declaring uh, <laughs> he's he's atheist he's prone uh -huh. to contrarianism apparently <laughs> i like I, him <laughs> I, 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 I don't know I've, I've never uh sat down and interviewed him i don't think i have so um I, I haven't asked those questions um so i think part of it maybe is you know some biblical um um rule against homosexuality that that's driving those attitudes um i get where mike is coming from and i'm i'm really sympathetic to it because i've seen it with my own eyes how um cross-culturally variable uh heterosexual men's willingness is to have sex with feminine males um of course that's not something we see in north america really i think we do though Maybe I, mean, I think maybe it depends on where we are. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I, you know, maybe if you're in in Seattle or Portland or some somewhere over there in in your area of the world, um, you you will get these urban communities of of 
of guys that are more, what do they call it? Hetero flexible. Flexible. No, but, but what I'm referring to more is I think, I think it's kind of universal. The, the, otherwise heterosexual males propensity to have sex with other males who they perceive as feminine or just sexually willing, sexually available. And I, don't, and, and I think that that is quite universal, but I think also what is mostly universal is also a general aversion to that practice or to male, like, like men are going to, going to, you know, basically have sex with whatever's available basically, you know? And I think even if they are kind of on a, on a general level, more, um, or a, a cultural level, or I don't know what the word, the word is, but um, like averse to the, they're still going to engage in it if it's available and it's the only thing that's available, I think is where I'm coming from. And I think that's universal. Whereas I think those men say in, in uh, my, you know, sort of liberal, liberal pockets of the world are just going to be able to embrace the label of bisexuality as cultural credit. Whereas in other, uh, uh, other parts of the world, they're just going to keep that, you know, very, very uh, under wraps. I'm not sure if that makes yeah. sense. I, I guess I, I'm I'm not convinced that straight guys will kind of go with whatever is available. That hasn't been my observation in, in North America. Um I I know straight guys who are uh, they're they're not homophobic, they're not transphobic, but they're highly averse to the idea of having sex with a guy. Um and you know, you it, probably it's important to remember that there's a significant, in terms of the research we've done on this topic of of straight guys having sex with fafafine, um, there's a significant minority of guys who only have sex with women. They're they're exclusively opposite sex attracted. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical about. Sorry, how... I I, I mean, didn't mean to imply that every every male. I, I just meant that, that that the propensity for that is much is much higher. I think than most people would would realize. That's what I was saying. It's like not every male is going to sleep with you know like not not everyone's prison by as the controversial term goes. But I think that yeah. the propensity is high. I think um, we just really don't. I mean, it's fascinating. I, I believe that. Um, heterosexual guys' willingness to sleep with feminine males is extremely cross-culturally variable. Um, why that is, though, we we don't really know. We've we've speculated that maybe if you're growing up in one of these cultures where feminine males like fafafine are are, are present in your uh, environment as you're developing, then um, that. It impacts your 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 willingness to recognize them as potential sexual partners, but um, I mean that's just speculation at this point. So there there's a lot more research that has to be done to kind of nail down why that cross cultural variability exists. But going back to a point you said earlier about um, you know is there something biological going on here i think maybe maybe it is um maybe it is easier to elicit disgust or aversion uh in heterosexual men to the idea of gay sex because um it it wouldn't have been evolutionarily advantageous mm -hmm. to engage in that kind of sex and it would be evolutionary evolutionarily advantageous 
for them to have some sort of a cognitive mechanism that makes them avoid those sorts of interactions. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to both possibilities. I just think we need, and it could be a combination of the two. Uh, I just think we need more research. You mentioned the word pronouns. I'm curious, uh, do the Fafafina use male or female pronouns? They use both. Um, <clears throat> so people switch back and forth all, all the time. People will refer to a highly feminine Fafafine as he or she. And um, and there's absolutely no offense taken. It's not it's not an issue in Samoa. Um they often, you know, those that are aware of these sorts of controversies that are going on in North America or in Europe, they often just shake their heads and think it's why would people um, be concerned about those sorts of things? So, yeah, it's it's I mean, I recognize in North America, that's an issue that is important for people, but it's not an issue that is cross-culturally universal. It's not a concern that's cross-culturally universal. I think in the, in the controversy that we're seeing here, I think that the concept of a third, sort of a metaphorical third space or third gender, I think could be a potential solution we could move towards, um, you know, because it, it's, I don't know how else we're, we're going to resolve this, this ongoing culture war. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, um... I've avoided sort of speaking about that because I don't know how feasible it would be to sort of take one cultural model and then overlay it onto another culture. But recently, you know, in terms of all of these controversies surrounding women's spaces, for example, um, I have thought, well, if we had a system like um, Samoa, um, maybe we wouldn't have some, some of these problems um, because Fafafine don't identify as women, for example. But that said, um, I'm skeptical about... I'm skeptical about the degree to which sort of third gender identities could take hold in, in North America. I mean, we're, we're all socialized, right? to believe that there are in an in a euro-american context to, to believe that there are there, there are men and women and um you you grow up identifying in that manner and it becomes very much part of who you are and how you think about yourself and how you present and how you sort of go forth in the world so um regardless of whether you're cisgender or or, or transgender and so um I, I, I totally understand how that sense of self would be important for people. And the idea of saying to certain people, I, I'm assuming we're talking about certain trans individuals now, well, actually you're you're a third gender and you should, you know, think of yourself that way. I, I suspect that would be a pretty tough sell. And um and you might be asking people to do the impossible because that's not how they conceptualize who they are. Yeah. It's equally a tough sell though, to, to assert that we literally have, have changed sex. 
So this is this is why I feel like that a, con, a metaphorical third space seems like a compromise between these two very polarized views, where neither neither side is budging and willing to to change how they're conceptualizing biological sex. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're basically talking about objective reality. Um, you know, you you can't change your sex. Um, but that said what do we do with highly feminine males and highly masculine females who, you know, I suspect that in any cultural context, most people would recognize their femaleness or recognize their maleness, but, but think, well, they're not really a man or they're not really a woman. They're, they're, there's something else and and in a Samoan cultural context what happens when that maleness is coupled with a high degree of femininity is um yeah they're not a man and they're not a woman they're 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 something else yeah speaking of of, of females in that case uh, I know it's not your area of expertise but uh but what is the what is the female equivalent there is there such a thing or or um I, I understand that there is but I'm not really uh clear yeah they're called fa'atama which means in the manner of a man so fa'a means in the manner of and dama means uh, man so yes they're they're there they're far less prevalent than fafafine which to me is nice. in the west too <laughs> yeah exactly i i yeah. suspect that that is just a cross-cultural universal no matter where you go in the world uh um, masculine gynophilic females, so females that are natal females that are attracted to other females, uh, they're going to be less numerous than um, than the uh, feminine androphilic males. I suspect that will be shown to be a cross-cultural universal. Um, and there are people doing more work uh, in that area recently, Doug Vanderlyn at the University of Toronto, he's going to be coming out with some papers on um, um, on masculine, uh, same-sex attracted uh, females in, in, in Thailand. Um, in my lab, we're, we're going to be coming out with some papers in the next little while on, um, I guess, trans men. That would be the term I would use. And to a lesser extent, lesbians, because uh, uh, they're harder to find these days than, than trans men in uh, Iran. So we're, we're just submitting um, some, starting to submit those papers now. So uh, just back to your question. Uh, yeah, they, they exist, uh, but there's, there's, there are these interesting differences, you know? Um, and I, I see, and again, I think these are cross-cultural universals that you you see in other places, like um, like where I work in Mexico, and you see them in North America. So you have these same-sex attracted masculine females, um, but they seem to be much less visible than the male, the feminine male androphiles, um, which is kind of don't don't you think? I mean, uh, it's sort of reminiscent of North America, where 
gay guys are very, they're much more public. Uh, um, and I guess the, uh, the other thing I noticed there is that there is like a fafafine, you might say a fafafine community, right? But I don't get the sense that the, the, the uh, fa'atama community is as cohesive or as stable. Um, I mean, that could in part be due to discrimination, which I think Fa'atama experienced more than Fafafine. Because that's different than the West, I would say. Yeah, because male, uh, because masculine uh, females are less accepted. Um, but it could also be due to some sort of personality traits which make masculine females less interested in the kind of um formation of social public social communities and public social spaces that uh characterizes androphilic males everywhere in the world the smaller uh, numbers are going to make that more difficult as well exactly, they're, yes. they're sparse and scattered across the Absolutely. And in fact, I agree with you completely, but I would say the exact same thing um, for Fafafine. So, you know, a lot of the work I do is in the capital of Pia uh, because Fafafine gravitate to the capital. Um, there are economic opportunities there. Um, and Probably another thing that makes them gravitate to the capital is um, there's opportunities to have all kinds of um, fun there, going going out to clubs and going out to bars and socializing with other groups of fafafine. Um, so when I go to the when I go to the villages and I do spend a lot of time in the villages, um, you know the fafafine just aren't as prevalent, and um, you might have a a fafafine or two in one village and then maybe one fafafine in the next village and none in the next village and two in the next village. So there is this sort of diffusion and it, 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 it does, it, it is interesting to think about what, what it would have been like prior to urbanization. How would these people who obviously have uh, similar interests, um, how would they have gotten together to form some sort of tiny little communities? Um, I spoke once once with uh, my 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 partner is uh, he's, he self identifies as Fafafine. He's um, he's cisgender though. Again, he's one of these rare exceptions. Um, I spoke with his uncle uh, who who lived a. a who lived out in one of the villages. He, he passed away uh, a few years ago, but before he did, I used to like to hang out with him. He, he, he was Fafafine as well. And also, interestingly enough, he was also cisgender. Um, but he, he would talk about what it was like. He was in his 80s at this time, and he would talk about what it was like way back in the day. Um, and yeah, there's, there's this challenge of how do you form community when individuals are are so diverse, but nevertheless, you know, people people did find each other, and he would describe to me uh, parties, and um, it sounded great. It sounded like there was this really really nice sense of belonging, and um, just fun. Yeah. So, 
with that with Would that you... being said you know with as far as the social integration so the these very highly effeminate gay men are they primarily socializing with with straight women or like how do they fit socially in in their social circles are we talking about Samoa yeah oh they uh, I mean it's really cool in Samoa because I don't get the sense that straight guys have any sort of uh discomfort around socializing with fafafine there it's just they're very integrated into the into the society and they're not they're not sort of marked as being like socially problematic that's that's what comes to mind so yeah i mean straight guys are they just treat them like any other person you know they're no more remarkable I think I, I I wrote once they're no more remarkable than your standard issue men and women, so they'll they're friends with women but they're friends with straight guys and they're friends with other yeah they're all, all of those things happen yeah. Do you think when that's you say that there's sorry I keep cutting you off Aaron go ahead oh uh, I just think I'm, I'm curious about this you keep mentioning that some people are both fafafine and cisgender what do you mean by that. I mean, they are fafafine in the sense that they don't they identify as fafafine, which in a Samoan cultural context means that they're they're there's something other than men and women. But there 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 are there are a handful who are cisgender, uh, by which I mean they look more or less like me. Um, so is that is that clear? Or is is that, that... Are you mean, do you mean like they're they're androphilic, but they integrate into society as men? Like what? Well, no, they wouldn't. They wouldn't be. They'd be seen as being fafafine. So let let me let me give you another example. So in this is probably not known to mo to most people, but where I work in southern Mexico, there are same sex attracted males who are known as Mushe, and they are, um, and Mushe are considered to be neither men nor women. They're like this alternative gender, this third gender. Um, so probably most people, when they, when, when I say that, they think of feminine same-sex attracted males, which in the group of people there are called the Ismo Zapotec, which in Ismo Zapotec culture would be referred to as Mushiguna. So these would be transgender androphilic males. But there's another type of Mushe in uh, Ismo Zapotec society, which is, as far as I can tell, pretty much as common as the transgender form. And that's the cisgender form. And if you looked at these individuals you you think well they they're they're cisgender they're same-sex attracted and they're natal males so looks like a gay guy to me but in that cultural context what that cluster of traits means is that they're not men or not women they're um they're a type of mushe and they're called mushe in gyu so there's mushe guna the transgender ones and mushe in gyu the cisgender ones in Samoa, so so it's interesting, just, just to finish up with that, it's interesting because here you have a situation where you have cisgender individuals in terms of their presentation, but they're 
we we might say they were transgender in terms of their identity um in in samoa there is no division like that although sometimes we'll sometimes someone might say oh uh he's a fafafine kama which means he's a boy fafafine as opposed to a fafafine kenge which would be a girl fafafine um so yeah so some some people like my partner for example um he identifies as a fafafine but he is cisgender in a somewhat similar vein to the Mushe Ingiu, which I just described to you. So his presentation is cisgender, but his, I guess you could say, uh, I guess you could say his identity is transgender because he's adopting this third gender identity. I mean, we've never, we've never sat down and had a heart to heart about this, but um, I'm just speculating what he might say. I know he would say for sure, uh, I am a fafafine. And I've never heard him ever, ever, ever identify as gay, ever. But it's not yeah, like it's, it's, it's not like we sit around and, and discuss this. Hashtag identities? No, he's he's <laughs> not. I mean, he's supportive of my research, but I don't think he's particularly interested. Like, I, I think, I, I mean, yeah. It's like that's okay. You you go away and do your data collection and your thing and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know some people take offense to the idea that because you're androphilic, that it's almost like you you're cast out of the male category. That's how they interpret this idea of a third of a third category that that you can't yeah. be male as long as you're androphilic. Um, but I wonder I wonder oh, to you, what you, extent a man, a man. So you're male. Yes. Yes, if you're male uh, and androphilic, uh, you can't yeah. be a man. And or, yeah. so that's how they interpret that is rather, but I wonder to what extent the third category actually facilitates their social inclusion and, and integration. Well, I think as, as we discussed earlier, um, you know, male femininity is, 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 accepted in Samoa. It's, it's tolerated. I would say it's, it's accepted. I don't think it's, I don't think it's celebrated. Like, you know, you, <laughs> any more than being a man or a woman is, but it's, 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 it's accepted. So I, I guess you might say that category facilitates that, that integration because people can say, oh, that's what that individual is. So per perhaps there's something to what you're saying. A way of making sense. Of yeah, that maybe. I would, if if we could just go back to for a second to what you said earlier about some people are offended. I I would just say, well, they probably don't want to do cross cultural research then because <laughs> there's a whole world there's a whole world of diversity in terms of how people think, and if you're um level of offense is contingent on everybody thinking like you or like your culture then um well so much for cultural diversity and so much for doing research on cultural diversity how common is medicalization in samoa it's not common 
Now, I know maybe, and, and you have to keep in mind, I've been doing the research now for 20, we're going on 20 years now. Um, I've maybe run across two or three Fafafine who have had um, sex reassignment surgery. Um, I'm not even sure if that's the lingo I should be using. So uh, I apologize if that's some people are upset by that, but, um, and I know a handful of Fafafine who they'll, they'll say they take tablets. That's how they describe it to, um, elicit some, uh, breast growth. The breast growth is minimal in my opinion. They, they have, you know, what might, you might describe as breast buds. And I think the tablets that they're talking about are um, birth control tablets that that they they take. Um, I know a couple fafafina like that, but um, we're talking about let in both cases we're, we're talking about far less than one percent out of the hundreds of fafafina I've I've interviewed. And most of the time, if I ask fafafina, I mean, I did um, one study where I asked about you know if I if the money was available, would you would you have a, a a sex change? And the vast majority said no. And um, when I asked why, they said, "Oh, I, I can just do it like this." That's that's how they talk about it. Yeah, if their needs are being met and they're integrated in society, there's there's just there wouldn't be the incentive to medicalize like there would be in the West. Yeah, and if they're able to get sexual partners, and also if they if there's a gendered category of personhood into which they can be slotted and into which they can slot themselves, which um, which doesn't require medicalization, then you put all that stuff together and it's just very, very rare. And I, I should note too that um, if somebody does get um, a sex change, and they come back to Samoa, absolutely no one considers them to be a woman. No one. Uh, once a fafafine, always a fafafine, as someone said to me, uh, another fafafine. Uh, yeah, you, you, so I guess they would subscribe to the idea that you can't change sex. You can, you can, you can masculinize or feminize your body uh, but you you can't literally change sex. Yeah, I get. Yeah, and if you're not going back to a culture that tells you you are a woman, that also you know negates a lot of the the drive. Go on. Sorry, sorry. Oh, I'm saying you're, also if you're if you're you're obviously returning to a culture that's not going to you know participate in a fantasy of you being the opposite sex. There also diminishes the drive to alter your body to approximate the opposite sex. Yeah, I guess I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I, I, I think there's something there. Um, I, again, like I'm not saying, and therefore this is how it should be in North America. Like, like I, that's not where any of this is coming from. Um, in North America, the situation is very different. There isn't another category that people can slot themselves into and feel good about themselves. 
um, like I think Fafafine, they take pride in being Fafafine, you know, uh, because uh, they're sort of known for taking care of the family and, you know, they derive a lot of pride from that. They're known for being good at certain jobs like decorating and they take a lot of pride in that. Um, we don't have a similar kind of situation in North America. And so if you're a masculine natal female, a very masculine natal female or a very feminine natal male, um, and you're not comfortable with what identity categories have been attributed to you, then there, you, there's only one way to go, and that's to flip the switch and become a member of the other gendered category that's available. I mean, I get that that's changing somewhat and um, there's more gender fluidity in North America and um, people are identifying in other ways. But I mean, you you guys would know better than I would uh, the degree to which that's the case in, in, in the trans community. How many people are adopting these alternative identities as opposed to the traditional man-woman ones. It seems the people who are adopting the more, like the third, like the whole non-binary categorization, they seem to just be mostly heterosexual, typically heterosexual uh, women or, or adolescent girls. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, it, for, for a similar reason is, is that it, 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 it's some way to differentiate yourself and to be something that's, that's currently celebrated. It really doesn't seem to have anything to do with innate gender feelings at all. It's more about having, mm -hmm. having a cultural designation that you can be celebrated for. Um, mm -hmm. That seems to so, be- are, are, you, are you talking about the, the adolescent females with what's been called rapid onset gender dysphoria? Is that what you're referring to or more general? No, no, it's even, it's even more general than that. It's more, more of a cultural designation that just means you're not cis and it very much has nothing to do, even with rapid onset gender dysphoria, they're still feeling bodily distress that they're trying to escape, that trans seems to be the solution for, or mm -hmm. really even the cause for, both non-binary, the more, the third designation, it seems to be much more, much less about an individual's body or their, or their sexual orientation and much more about just not being a boring cis straight person it's some mm. kind of it's, it's a cultural designation primarily that exists in, in very liberal parts of of uh, the west where yeah it just means that you're you're somehow hip with with not being boring it's it's, it's very it has very little to do with with gender or sexuality i found and more to do with just being being something interesting something yeah being yeah. punk rock essentially yeah yeah i guess that's another kind of important distinction between you know euro-american societies versus some of the places i work like samoa or you know among the ismo zapotec is is that they're lower uh, i would say on um you know dimensions of indiv in individuality and so and higher on collectivism mm -hmm. so so this this phenomena we see in North America of people wanting to be express themselves as individuals and you know define details of their gender or sexuality in 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 this minute manner um and then have have it validated by others you you don't really see that in these places um 
yeah, I think I think those kinds of people would find it very difficult functioning in Samoa because that kind of demand for hyper individualized recognition would be would be mocked. Right, right. Well, and I don't even think it's that those individuals, it, it is the culture that they're raised in, right? So if you're raised in a culture that values your purpose within the group and like that has collectivist values, you're going to find purpose and meaning and, you know, self-fulfillment in fitting into and being useful to the to the collection. Uh, but in an individualized society, you're going to try to find a way that makes you, you know, stand out as an individual because yeah. that's what that's what the community uh is gonna is gonna celebrate so i think it is i think this stuff arises simply because of yeah uh, yeah uh, just way too much individual celebration yeah. of individualism yeah yeah that, that sort of very public focus on who i am as an individual <laughs> let mm. me let me break it down for you at great length <laughs> that would that would ne never never right. fly in some more people would people would be making right. fun of them very, very quickly. Yeah. yeah. I just have one uh, final question for you. Um, sure, in sure. terms of, in terms of, so talked at length about highly feminized, um, androphilic men, masculinized, same-sex attracted females. How does that track into some of your work um, with other primates? Okay. Uh, so you're asking about the Japanese macaque work. Yeah. yeah so, I have a totally separate stream of research that has been going on for like 33 years, or I think 33 years, a long time, more than three decades. And um, it, it focuses primarily on uh, understanding why female Japanese macaques or what people might know as snow monkeys, why they engage in uh, homosexual behavior uh, at least in certain groups, such as the one I study, which uh, the group I study is called Arashiyama. It's on the outskirts of Kyoto. Um, and um, yeah, so so I've I've spent lots and lots of my life watching monkeys have sex. And um, how does it link in? I guess it just links in in terms of a general interest in uh, how do why do non-reproductive sexual behaviors exist? So um, those are questions about potentially, you know, function, evolution. And if they're not functional, how, how do they come to be? Um, and so lots of the Japanese macaque work is focused on uh, asking those kinds of questions. And then also a sort of type of question that people might not think about so much, which is one that I, I find really fascinating. What are the consequences of having these individuals in your social environment? Because they're not just inert, right? They're their own active agents. And what are the, the, the consequences of having a transgender androphilic male in your, in your group? Or uh, so, so I'm, I'm interested in, those kinds of evolutionary questions um, when it comes to, you know, both, uh, both non-human animals, particularly primates and, and, and humans. Um, 
the 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 sort of connection between the two isn't seamless though because in you know half of my life I've spent studying female sexuality in Japanese monkeys but the other half of my my professional life I spent studying um, same-sex sexuality in in males be it in the transgender or cisgender form well, thanks so much for sharing your time with us. It's been fascinating. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. It's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.